Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is called The Care of Creation, Choose Life for You and Your Children. It's a guest essay by Bill McKibben. Bill McKibben is an, environment, an American environmentalist and writer who frequently writes about global warming and alternative energy and advocates for more localized economies. In 2010, the Boston Globe called him probably the nation's leading environmentalist, and Time Magazine described him as the world's best green journalist. The Care of Creation, Choose Life for You and Your Children. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, September 5th, 2010. What a summer we've witnessed, a summer like no other in human history. The researchers at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration confirmed in July that we had just come through the hottest six months, the hottest year, and in fact, the hottest decade on record. 17 nations have seen new all-time temperature records, which in itself is a record. In late May, in Pakistan, a new all-time record for all of Asia was set, when the mercury reached 129 degrees. That's hot. But numbers can be abstract and hard to connect with, especially if you weren't the one wandering around in the 129-degree heat. So this summer, we've also seen palpable signs of what these records mean what a globally warming world looks at. Take these three examples. In Greenland, a chunk of ice four times the size of Manhattan broke off a northern glacier and floated out into the ocean. In Russia, a heat wave of epic proportions tested human endurance. It had never reached 100 degrees in Moscow before, but in early August it reached 100 degrees almost every day. Massive fires filled the city with eerie, choking smoke. The drought was so intense that the Kremlin stopped all grain exports, turning around train cars that were headed for ports, and spiking the world price of grain. And most devastatingly, in Pakistan, in China, and in the Himalayas, record rainfalls produced devastation. Scientists had been warning that flooding was on the increase. Warmer air holds more water vapor than cold, so the chances of deluge are higher than they used to be. But those warnings did little to prepare anyone for the reality. Mammoth rainfalls put 20 million people on the move in Pakistan. There's scarcely a bridge left along the route of the Indus River, a humanitarian crisis bigger, according to the experts, then the tsunami and the Haitian earthquake combined. This trouble is no mystery. It stems from our unwillingness to live according to the dictates of creation. To use the language of Deuteronomy, it stems from our unwillingness, quote, to walk in the ways of the Lord, to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Deuteronomy 30, 15. Doubtless God could have made a world in any number of ways, but the way he chose has certain features. 
The most important to this discussion are twofold. Number one, if you burn fossil fuel, you produce carbon dioxide. Lots of it. One gallon of gas weighs about eight pounds. And when it's burned, it gives off about five and a half pounds of carbon. It doesn't matter how well-tuned your engine is, CO2 is an inevitable byproduct of burning coal, gas, or oil. And number two, the molecular structure of CO2 traps heat near the planet that would otherwise radiate back out to space. That's why the planet has warmed one degree already, and why scientists warn us that unless we stop burning fossil fuel very quickly, it will rise another four or five degrees in the lifetimes of the youngest people in our churches. To take these facts seriously is to take creation seriously. We can't do our work of stewardship unless we understand the basic ground rules. Science has provided those ground rules, and we should be grateful. It's no mystery either, though, why people in the why, why people in the rich countries don't want to hear this news. We like burning fossil fuel. From the moment we get up in the morning to the time we go to bed at night, almost every action of a modern life requires us to burn coal, gas, or oil. Turning on a light, turning on the oven, taking a shower, driving to work, firing up your computer. The list is as endless and varied as our lives. There are other ways to provide that power, of course. God has also given us a world awash in sun and wind, and engineers have figured out how to harness that power. But right now, it's not quite as cheap as coal and gas and oil. And in our short-sightedness, we're not willing to make the leap to that new world. We bow down to other gods, and the strongest of those gods goes by the name of economy. Maybe the saddest part of this story is that carbon dioxide, in this creation, mixes completely in the global atmosphere. That is, even though people in Pakistan use very little fossil fuel, their atmosphere is the same as in America, where people are the world champions of carbon production. And because Pakistanis are living closer to the edge, they suffer more faster than Americans. Instead of loving our neighbors, we're drowning them. It's important that Christians around the world unite to send aid to those people now in desperate need. But it's also equally important that we unite to actually change the factors driving this damage. On 10-10-10, people around the world will join in a huge global work party coming together to put up solar panels, or dig community gardens, or lay out bike paths. They'll do it not just because those are good things, but because they want to send a strong message to our political leaders, who so far have done so little. And what is that message? It's as follows. We're getting to work. Now it's your turn. If I can climb up on the roof of the church and hammer in a solar panel, I expect you politicians to climb to the floor of the Senate or the Parliament or the Politburo and hammer out the laws we need to send us in a new direction. 
As it happens, 10-10-10 is also the Sabbath. It's a day, as Jesus said, not just to reflect on the goodness of the earth we've been given by a gracious God, but to make sure that that goodness is spread to those most in need. As a civilization, we need finally to make that choice between life and death, blessings and curses. There's nothing metaphorical about the language from Deuteronomy. Choose life so that you and your children may live. Deuteronomy 30:19. The stakes have never been clearer than this summer. Choose life for you and your children. A guest essay by the environmentalist Bill McKibben. For books this week, I review Eric Lacks, Faith Interrupted, A Spiritual Journey. New York, Knopf, 2010, 274 pages. In the very first sentence of his memoir, Nothing to be Frightened of, Julian Barnes writes, I don't believe in God, but I do miss him. Barnes came by his belief honestly, his father was an agnostic, and his mother didn't believe, quote, any of that religious mumbo-jumbo, end, end quote. Eric Lacks, on the other hand, best known for his several biographical books on Woody Allen, enjoyed a radically different religious heritage. He deeply loved and has respected his father, an Episcopal priest, and served with relish and pride as an earnest acolyte from age eight through his college years. But in the very last sentence of his memoir, Blacks ends up in the same spiritual space as Barnes. He no longer believes the faith of his father, he confesses, but he says, I miss it. Eric Lacks recalls a childhood that can only be called idyllic in the best sense of that word. He honored and adored his father. As a little boy, he knelt by his bed for nightly prayers. Education was at an Episcopal school, and summers were spent at an Episcopal camp founded by his father. Lax's mother was likewise gracious, witty, and devout. Lax says he cannot even imagine having had better parents, and of how fortunate he was that he did. These were years of a natural, sincere, and simple faith that Lax took to college in the fall of 1962. Even into his 30s, he prayed regularly. At college, Lax met his roommate, George Packard, a close friend of 50 years now, and much of his memoir recalls the asymmetrical paths that their lives took. These were the Vietnam years, Whereas Lacks spent years arguing his case as a conscientious objector before the draft board and was even willing to go to prison for his principled beliefs, and later joined the Peace Corps for two years in Micronesia, Packard ended up in Vietnam on ambush and patrol. Packard later entered the Episcopal priesthood after Vietnam and eventually became a bishop about the same time that Lacks was experiencing a slow but certain drift from his unexamined childhood faith. The death of Lacks's father, he says, meant the loss of his conduit and anchor to his faith. 
And 19 years later, the death of his mother in 1995 meant that, quote, I had no reason to fake faith and hide my doubts and concerns. Instead of reciting the Apostles' Creed and feeling like a hypocrite, he could now keep his uncomfortable silence. What's surprising about Lax's loss of faith, or at least his description of the loss, is that there's no acute crisis. And except for a single passing mention, nor do any of the standard objections to faith like the problem of evil or the existence of other religions come into play. When I was losing my faith, writes Lax, it took some time for me to realize it. I wasn't looking to lose it. I just suddenly noticed there was a separation I had never known. I was like a car whose tires all have imperceptible leaks. Everything runs smoothly until four flats bring you to a halt. Lax admits that his doubts are hardly unfamiliar ones. He doesn't repudiate the multitude of priests and believers that he inherited from his family. He honors them. He's not even too willing to say that they're mistaken, but instead wonders if he himself is mistaken. He writes, although it's one of the seven deadly sins, I admire them. What Lax wishes he had was, quote, what I had always had, but the faith I had accepted without question and could articulate by catechetical rote could not be captured in reverse. Which raises an interesting question. What exactly is the difference between the childlike faith that Jesus commends and the childish faith that adults rightly outgrow. A wonderful book that I highly recommend. The author is Eric Lacks. The title, Faith Interrupted, A Spiritual Journey. For film this week, I review a title called Please Give. The movie is from 2010. Writer and director Nicole Holofcener has created a nuanced portrait of five women from four generations who each struggle in their own way to make moral sense of family life in New York City. Kate and her husband Alex run a vintage furniture store that thrives because they buy low from distressed customers and sell high to status-conscious New Yorkers. Kate feels uneasy about that formula. She frets about the homeless and surfs the internet at night for volunteer opportunities that might add meaning to her life. Their 15-year-old Abby whines for $200 blue jeans, obsesses about her admittedly horrible acne, and does a lot of truth-telling, in, in fact. In the apartment next door is a crotchety 90-year-old widow who was angry at the world and cared for by two granddaughters in their late 20s who mother, whose mother committed suicide. Rebecca is a saint who has no life of her own, and she knows it, while Sister Marissa is a bitch who thinks she, ha thinks she has a life but doesn't know it, only later to find out. No one has it easy in this film, and we love each character for the way they try, well or poorly, to negotiate the moral complexities of very ordinary lives. 
The title of the movie, Please Give. And finally this week, in keeping with our environmental theme, we've posted a fantastic poem by Wendell Berry. Wendell Berry was born in 1934. The title of the poem, Manifesto, The Mad Farmer Liberation Front. Love the quick profit, the annual raise, vacation with pay. Want more of everything ready-made. Be afraid to know your neighbors and to die. And you will have a window in your head. Not even your future will be a mystery anymore. Your mind will be punched in a card and shut away in a little drawer. When they want you to buy something, they will call you. When they want, want you to die for profit, they will let you know. So, friends, every day do something that won't compute. Love the Lord. Love the world. Work for nothing. Take all that you have and be poor. Love someone who does not deserve it. Denounce the government and embrace the flag. Hope to live in that free republic for which it stands. Give your approval to all you cannot understand. Praise ignorance, for what man has not encountered, he has not destroyed. Ask the questions that have no answers. Invest in the millennium. Plant sequoias. Say that your main crop is the forest that you did not plant, that you will not live to harvest. Say that the leaves are harvested when they have rotted into the mold. Call that profit. Prophesy such returns. Put your faith in the two inches of humus that will build under the trees every thousand years. Listen to carrion. Put your ear close and hear the faint chattering of the songs that are to come. Expect the end of the world. Laugh. Laughter is immeasurable. Be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. So long as women do not go cheap for power, please women more than men. Ask yourself, will this satisfy a woman satisfied to bear a child? Will this disturb the sleep of a woman near to giving birth? Go with your love to the fields. Lie down in the shade. Rest your head in her lap. Swear allegiance to what is nighest your thoughts. As soon as the general and the politicos can predict the motions of your mind, lose it. Leave it as a sign to mark the false trail the way you did not go. Be like the fox who makes more tracks than necessary, some in the wrong direction. Practice resurrection. The Mad Farmer Liberation Front, a poem by Wendell Berry. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, September 5th, 2010. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.